Romans 3, 9 through 20. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. Libby, thank you so much for reading. Hey, Paul, where did that song come from, that last one? Did you write that? No, I didn't. Phil Wickham. That was really a great song. Can we sing that, like, in the rotation? Yes. Okay, good. That was really great. I love that beat. Yeah, it's one of the reasons. You know, God's blessed this congregation with so many great musicians, of which I am not one. And uh, it's just such a blessing. You know, you guys, I was walking around this morning just uh, seeing so many of you. I got to meet a guy from Germany. I don't know where you are, but just absolutely delighted you came this morning. And I... Uh, Dear friend of mine, I was at Vanderbilt as a cheerleader, and there was a basketball player named Brian who is here this morning. Brian, delighted you're here. Uh, this is really uh, such a blessing to be a part of this church family. And uh, I'm coming up on, 20, I guess this has been 21 years in pastors. Life, shelf life is generally not that long, but by the grace of God, <laughs> it has been a real blessing to be uh, with you guys for so long. And I say that because we're about to jump into a really difficult uh, passage of Scripture. And let me tell you why we want to do this. Um, And especially for those of you in the room who are not Christians, if you're not a Christian, I want to really, first, I'm really glad you're here. This series on Romans is a really good series for you to think about the Christian faith because the Apostle Paul, a man named Paul, who was part of early Christianity, writes to the church in Rome, which, by the way, was the center of the world 2,000 years ago. And he writes to the church in Rome a very systematic theology or a very systematic understanding of Christianity. So it's a really, really great letter for us to go through. And so the, the, here's, here's the bottom line this morning. Here's where you want to understand. What, what Paul says and what's true about us is that we are sinful And we have no excuse and no defense. We're sinful. We fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, we're under the wrath of God, apart from the grace of God. We have no defense and no excuse. So it's only truly in the end God himself who can move to solve that dilemma. And we'll actually see that here this morning. Now... If you were here a few weeks ago, we started in Romans 1, chapters, uh, uh, verses 18 through 32, and Paul talked about the unrighteousness of the Gentile world. Gentiles are anybody that's not a Jew. 
Then in 2, 1 through 16, he talked about hypocrisy, which many people would say the church is filled with. In 2, 17 through 29, Paul talked about the self-righteousness of the Jewish people. So really, he's really talking about everything because in Romans 3, 9 through 20, as Libby just read it, it's Paul's conclusion here is he said, what shall we conclude then? It's his conclusion that sin is a universal problem and it's pervasive and we have no excuse. And that's what this passage talks about. So let's just walk through it together. Notice first in 9 through 12, sin is universal. So he, he's concluding the first part of the letter by saying, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. So he's simply saying, we've already made the charge that everybody, both Jew and Gentile alike, are. Now notice how it goes. All under the power of sin. There is no one righteous, not even one. Verse 11, there's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. 12, all have turned away. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now why is, God, uh, why is Paul writing like this? The reason that he wants us to know that there's no one in this room apart from the grace of God who can stand before the living God is because we are our biggest problem. Whenever you get up any given day, if you want to see what the problem with your world is, just look in the mirror. Now, some of you may be saying, well, I'm not that bad. If I were sitting in your place, I would say, well, I'm not that bad. I would actually say, um, then you're not looking in the mirror. You're really not. You're either looking out the window or you're looking at somebody else. Because when I say I'm not that bad, you know what I'm really doing? I'm looking at you and say you're worse than I am. But here's the problem with that line of thinking. I'm not going to be judged by your standard. I'm going to be judged by God's standard. And so everybody in the room is. And so what Paul says here is there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. No one who does good. So sin is universal. Now, why is that? Let me unpack it for you. Throw up Genesis chapter 3. Here's the basic problem with all humanity. So Adam and Eve, the first two human beings, were by God called to obedience and God said, you can eat of any tree, of, uh, any tree in the Garden of Eden except one tree, the, the knowledge of good and evil. Well, what did Adam and Eve do? Of course, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here's the conversation as God pursued Adam and Eve when they went to hide from God as he came after them. The Lord God called to, to the man, where are you? The man answered, I heard you in the Garden, God. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? There's the question for all humanity. Have you obeyed me? Have you obeyed God? And so here's the man's response. The woman, you gave me. And so what does he do when he's doing that? He's simply saying, she gave, some, she gave me the fruit of the tree. You gave her to me. I ate it. I'm the innocent one. It's her fault and yours. And that's called the fall. Because at that point, she was blamed, God was blamed, and the man enthroned himself in his own heart 
as the God of his universe, he kicked God off the throne. And self-centeredness became the definition of human nature. And so the definition of sin is simply this. It's the enthronement of self in the place of God. It's the ultimate attempt to become my own God. Sin is doing whatever I want, when I want to do it, with no thought of glorifying God. It's a result, excuse me, it's a revolt of the self against his maker. It's literally coming to the Lord and dethroning him and sitting in the place that he alone was to sit in, in the human heart. It's in the enthroning of myself. It's becoming my own sovereign. It is, as Frank Sinatra sang uh, to the delight of so many, it's doing things my way instead of God's way. And that's what sin is all uh, all about. Now, let me tell you why this is such a problem. An author whom I love wrote this. We believe that the world was made by a God who's a community of persons who've loved each other from all eternity. In other words, God is three persons in one being, and because he is a tri-personal God, he had inherent selfless love relationship from all eternity. The reason he created you and me is to share that selfless love with us and to have that love have that love return to him. So when we turn in on self, we actually fall into self-worship, which will lead to our ultimate destruction. Because I can tell you, when you sit on the throne of your own life, you'll never, ever find what you're looking for. You were created by God, and the deepest desires of every human being will never be found in sitting on his own throne, but instead sitting at the feet of God enthroned in self. Selfishness will never get you what you want. Those of you who've raised, raised children, when about two years old your children begin to blossom, what are you dealing with? You're dealing with the fact that they don't want to share their toys. And you're mortified when they say, mine. Well, let me just tell you, you're seeing what started in the womb but is now in full flower. And so we teach our children not to be self-centered. Why? Because we know that that's not the life they're ultimately looking for. That selfless love for the other is what we desire for our children. Do you know why? Because it's designed that way. You were made, this author says, for mutually self-giving, other-directed love. Self-centeredness destroys the fabric of what God has made. See, the fabric of the universe is selfless, self-giving love for the other. That's the way the universe was woven together by a God who had that selfless love within him. He wove the fabric of the universe like that. When we turned in on ourselves and became, and became self-worshippers, We tore the fabric of the universe. We tore our relationships apart. And so the woman you gave me, she made me eat the fruit. We were separated from God, and then we were separated from each other. And beloved, I want to tell you, that's the reason we have relational strife that's affected so many of us in the room. We have vocational strife. We have 
nationalistic strife. The reason we go to war with other countries is because of the inherent self-centeredness. It's one of the things that I've been deeply commit, convicted about. When the campaign slogan, uh, Make America Great Again, was, uh, was put out in 2016, and I don't mean to get really political here, but I'm all for making America great again. I, I, really, I really think God has blessed this country, but we've got to define greatness because true greatness is never at the expense of other people. It's truly not. True greatness is really me investing myself to make you great or to do great things for you. That's true greatness for me. Can you imagine a world that understood greatness like that? You know why you can? It's coming. It's coming. When God comes to rule and reign and bring in the new heavens and the new earth, true greatness will come and we'll be giving ourselves to him and to each other. Sin is a cruel taskmaster. It holds us captive under the crushing weight of guilt, judgment. And what sin does, it, it, it deceives us into believing that we can actually find satisfaction in something else besides the Lord, ultimately. Sin is like Simon Legree. It crushes the body and the soul. Sin is universal, and that's the basic problem, Paul says. Not only is it universal, it's also pervasive. Look at verses 13 through 18. Now, notice what Paul says here. He says, their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. Now, he starts off by saying that sin people, sinful people, their throats are open graves. What does he mean by this? Well, picture this. Do you, have you ever pulled up along the side of the road and you've gotten out, uh, out of your car and you suddenly discovered an animal that was hit by another car maybe a week before? And then you step up to it and you realize, yes, indeed, it was at least a week before that that animal died. Have you, have you done that? Or perhaps you've been speeding down the road and you missed the animal but you caught the stench of the dead animal in the road. Well, this is exactly what Paul's talking about. When he says their throats are open graves, what he's saying is there's an airway passage open that reveals what's deep down inside. And it's a stench. It's the stench of self-centeredness. Listen, self-centeredness does not look good on anybody in this room. It doesn't look good on you. And it doesn't look good on me. And it breaks relationship. And you were made for loving relationship. But you'll never find it by trying to take things from other people. You'll never find it like that. And so Paul says that at the core of who we are is the fact that we've actually enthroned ourselves there. And so if there's an open way to the core of who we are, it's going to smell like stench. And it's going to drive people away. He goes on here. Look at what he says. Their tongues practice deceit. Poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Men and women, are you like me? I use words for a living. I, I literally make, I put my children through college with words. And I've also put other people down for most of my life with words. In the form of prayer requests. 
actually gossip. Why do we use our words to put people down? Do you know why? Because we want leverage. And do you know what we want leverage to do? We put people down to lift ourselves up. But what if there was another way to be lifted up? Outside of you doing it yourself. This is the beauty of the gospel. There is another who will lift you up. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. But now we see that sin is pervasive. It's at the core of who we are. Our mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Notice this. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And what he's noting here is something interesting. He says, when we speak words that are violent towards other people, ultimately we will do violence towards other people. That's right. We've got to be very careful with our rhetoric towards other nations. Because we don't want to incite violence with our words. But I can say this. If at the core of who I am, self is enthroned there, and if at the core of who you are, self is enthroned there, then we can't be companions along the road. We are inherently competitors. And if we're competitors, I'm out to vanquish you, and you're out to vanquish me. And we'll, do, we'll use whatever we have to in order to win. And it's the way things work because if you're my competitor, I'm going to try to defeat you. But what if we were companions? Then our feet wouldn't be swift to shed blood. You know, one of the things I admire about uh, Martin Luther King, one of the things I admire most is his choice for nonviolence. But don't be fooled. There were men around him who were advising him to take up arms and to start killing people. But he said, no, I will not do it. But when he said no, he would not do it. He knew that he himself and his movement would have to absorb the violence done to them. And of course, he paid the ultimate price. Because if you choose not to return violence with violence, you must absorb it in order to stop it. And to absorb violence is painful. So if someone says something bad about you and you choose not to return it, you choose not to, if you will, vomit back on them, what do you do with what they've said? Is there a place you can go with it? Is there someone who you could take it to who cares about you? I think there is. Words become weapons. And they turn into violence towards other people. Jesus is the one who says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. And the reason he says, do good to those who hate you, is because when you do good to those who hate you, there's a real shot. Listen to me carefully. When you do good to those who hate you, there's a real shot that they'll stop hating but I can tell you something else. When you do good to those who hate you, listen to me, you're free. You are free. Because if you respond to them the way they initiate towards you, we're in bondage. If we do good to people, who don't do good to us, we 
free. We're free. Sin is pervasive. Notice how he says it. It comes from the core of who we are. It comes in our words. It comes in our actions. And we, all because of this, we've turned our back on God. Notice how it says there. There's no fear of God before their eyes. In other words, there's no fear of God. There's no desire to obey God simply because we've turned our back on the living God. And when we turned our back on the living God, God's no longer in view. And that's what's happened in so much of our culture. God's just no longer in view. And so consequently, what happens? There's no fear of God because we're not looking at him. And so we don't see God as, have something about, as having something to say about who we are and how we live. And so sin becomes more and more pervasive. We are our biggest problem. G.K. Chesterton was a great writer and philosopher in the 20th century, the most quoted man of the 20th century. He received a request from a magazine in Britain and the magazine requested an essay and said, what's wrong with the world? Well, Chesterton was delighted to write that essay, and he wrote back, I am. So we are what's wrong with our world apart from the grace of God because we enthrone self, thereby tearing the fabric of the universe. So what happens? Well, we have no excuse and no defense, and let me tell you why. Every human being who's ever lived will ultimately stand before the judgment seat of God and answer for his or her actions because God will make everything right. Everyone will stand before the bar of justice. What will that be like for you? Paul says we have no excuse and no defense. Look at verses 19 through 20. And we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Now, we've learned in previous weeks that the Jews had the Ten Commandments, and so they had the written law and tablets of stone. We also learned that other people had the law of God written on their hearts. So Paul's comment here really says that we're all under law because all of us have a sense of right and wrong that's given to us by God himself. I can assure you, we couldn't come together as a culture if we didn't have a sense of right and wrong. I don't care how dark things get. Even on Pluto, there's still light. And so what happens here is those under law are going to be held accountable by what we know and we fail to do. Or what we know and we do opposite of. We'll be held accountable. And here's the way Paul puts it. Every mouth will be silenced, and the whole world, notice this, the whole world will be held accountable to the right and wrong God reveals to us. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Why? Because none of us live up to what we know to be right. All of us fail at some point. We all fall short of the glory of God. So there's no defense. There's no excuse. And so it's written here, Paul says, really, through the law, we become conscious of the fact that we break it. Remember two weeks ago? Have you ever murdered anybody? Well, no. Jesus comes right, right back around and says, have you ever been angry at someone? He says, if you've been angry at them, you've murdered them. 
So let me ask you again. Have you murdered someone? And all of us say, yes. Do you see? There's no one righteous, no, not one. No excuse, no defense. So what do we do? What do we do? Notice, I want you to see this. Every mouth is silenced. Because self is enthroned, everything we do, even the good things we do, are in some way tainted with a selfish motive. Tainted, maybe ever so slightly, but still tainted, apart from God's grace. So how does God move towards a sinful humanity that's been silenced? Our mouths are closed because we are defenseless before the living God. How does God move towards us? In a really wonderful way. Sit back and listen to this. Mark chapter 14. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? Listen to this. This is essential. Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Now, Jesus is the sinless Son of God who could have easily defended himself against any charge of blasphemy or sin. But instead of defending himself, he chose to remain silent. Why did he keep his mouth closed? Why did he keep his mouth closed? You know, when my wife moves towards me and says, you've done this wrong, she says it in a sweet way. But it never sounds sweet to me. You've done this wrong. As soon as I hear you've done this wrong, it's an assault on the core of who I am. And my very validity is shaken. And I'm like, my first response is, no. Blank no. I didn't. That's Well, that is. This is church. But that's my first response. And then I might step back and say, well, maybe. And then I start to minimize it. And then I say, well, you didn't help me. And then I start doing my Adam imitation in the garden. And what ends up happening is when I'm, when I'm confronted with something I've done wrong, suddenly I immediately go in the, the, to the defense mode. And the reason that I do that is I'm really trying to justify myself before God and people by my own actions. And so when the foundation of my own actions is questioned, then I get defensive and I react. How about you? Is that a problem for you? Well, I can tell you this. The reason Jesus didn't open his mouth is for one simple reason. That in not opening his mouth, he declared He made the greatest statement of love that humanity has ever heard. He said so much by keeping his mouth closed. Jim, Isaiah. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Each of us has turned to our own way. There it is. Do you see? The fall... The enthronement of self is all the way through Scripture. 
because it's all the way through us. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, notice this, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Why didn't he open his mouth? Do you know why? Because God himself was laying our guilt on Christ. And instead of choosing to defend himself, he embraced our guilt and endured the penalty on our behalf. In order to save us, he couldn't save himself. It was one or the other. And he loves you more than he loves himself. Let me say it again. He loves you more than he loves himself. That's the love you're looking for. You'll not find it in your love for self, but his love for you. And when you come to faith in Christ, y'all, isn't this awesome? You know, isn't this awesome? You know, I'm, I struggle. I want to be loved. I really do. Isn't that awesome that Jesus loves you that much? Let that, let that go with you today. Let me tell you a quick story. Um, because when you begin to, when you receive Jesus' love for you, here's what he does. He takes you by the hand and he unseats you from the throne of your own heart. And he sits there. And he sits there and he makes you new. And so consequently, when your throat is open, the stench doesn't flow out. Do you know what begins to flow out is selfless love for the other. And your life begins to be transformed. And when a little bit of a stench comes from somewhere, we're confessing our sins and going to Jesus. But he really begins to transform us. You guys about, let me end uh, with this story, about uh, or last Thursday. My wife and I are involved in this cool new ministry called Uprise. And it's a ministry of people who are working to get out of poverty. And um, we're working with a lot of people who are marginalized, who are really struggling with life and have gone through a lot of things and have had hurtful things, sometimes because of their own actions, but sometimes just because of institutional uh, issues in our country. And so... We are allies wanting to get connected with uh, the leaders. The leaders are the ones involved in the ministry. We're allies who are wanting to get connected to the leaders. And so we were speed dating. And speed dating means they were just going around checking us all out to see if they wanted us to be mentors in their life is really what it boiled down to. Well, this precious young woman who had had a very hard life came and sat with Debbie and me. And I was sitting sort of to the side. And she was just, she, she was... Uh, quiet as a flower and she's shy and uh, talks softly and, and right in the middle of our talk she leaned up and looked at my wife and said you are so beautiful I said amen she looked at Debbie and said you are so beautiful it was the sweetest thing 
without the miss of a beat, my wife leaned up, knee to knee, put her hands on this precious young woman's knees and said, you are so beautiful. Now, that was really cool. Can I tell you something even cooler? Friday morning, I was telling Debbie about that, and Debbie said, what? Did I say that? No, Jesus did. Let's pray.